The subject of the talk tonight is living in a world of change. As I mentioned before we did the meditation, today is the six-month anniversary of uh, September 11th, and it's been a very intense time for all of us in different ways. And we've seen so many responses to the events, to the loss of life, to the damage, now to the war. Obviously a lot of grief, a lot of sadness, certain amount of anger, some arguing, incredible bravery, love, understanding, forgiveness. All these human possibilities have come about. There was a very interesting TV show on last night, I don't know how many of you saw it, that was filmed inside uh, Tower 1 of the World Trade Center on the morning of September 11th. And these two young cameramen had been following a certain uh, fire company, uh, Ladder 1 of the New York City Fire Department, for several months. And they said they'd gotten a lot of great footage of everything but a big fire. And on the morning of September 11th, they thought they had really um, struck pay dirt because there was a big fire. So they followed Ladder 1 to the World Trade Center, and they were one of the first on the scene because they their station house was near the center. And they went right in with the, with the firemen and uh, were stationed in the lobby where they set up the command post and basically ran their video camera for the whole length of time that they could in the lobby. And it was quite amazing to feel that event from within. Um, one of the first things you noticed was how the firemen just went up the stairs without any hesitation. There were no elevators operating um, from the very beginning, but the firemen didn't even think twice. They just threw their hoses over their back and just started up the stairs in what they thought was going to be a big and, and hopefully successful rescue operation. And then as the hour wore on, that the cameras were rolling, uh, the firemen were all gone and the chiefs were the ones who stayed in the lobby to command the operation. And you could just see the faces of the chiefs change over the hour from kind of confidence and engagement and, and optimism to this look of kind of being stunned, is how I could best describe it. They just looked overwhelmed by the situation that they found themselves in and realized that it was probably going to be out of their control. And this is quite amazing to see. These are middle-aged firemen who have been doing this kind of work probably all their professional life. And they were just, they were lost in the enormity of it. Some firemen commented that um, they actually saw fear in these faces for the first time that they'd ever known them. Fear was not part of their vocabulary, but they saw it on that morning. Then, sort of mid-morning, or partway through the day, off-duty firemen started coming in, just um, totally unprompted and uncalled. And one uh, fire chief who had been retired for three years came down, got a suit, and headed right for the World Trade Center and just said that, Uh, These are my people. These are my men. I couldn't leave them alone. 
So that level of bravery and um, solidarity was there through the whole operation as well. And as you know, it continued through the day after the buildings collapsed. The firemen and the police worked around the clock uh, to try to find survivors, to try to help anyone they could find. But I think the most startling part of the whole video is it was filming the lobby for about an hour. As you, as you remember, there were people jumping out of the windows very high up on the buildings because the fires were from about the 80th floor and above. And about every 10 minutes in the video, there would be this huge slamming noise that took place outside the building that was the sound of a body hitting the ground from 80 stories up. And you could see every time it happened, the firemen um, would be kind of startled again and would sort of look around through the windows. The camera never found, the camera never turned to do that. But you could see the impact in the firemen when that was happening. And then another 10 minutes would go by and another intense slam would happen. And you could just take that sound as a way to go into the suffering of those people. Because what kind of terror would prompt someone to jump from 80 stories high? That jumping was a preferable alternative to what they were facing up there. Then um, the cameras rolled on and showed um, a lot of people coming down through the stairways and leaving safely from Tower 1. And then also, of course, they showed the collapse of both the towers and people running away uh, from, the, from the disaster. It was a sobering reminder of something that I'd seen a lot of minutes of on the day, but hadn't watched for, for quite a while. And from this perspective, it put me right back into the feelings that I had on September 11th. It was, again, it was very hard uh, to be with. And I think what it reminded me of at this distance is the enormity of, st- of the stakes that we face in living. Sometimes we forget this. Living in a comfortable place like Marin County or Northern California, we kind of forget that life is full of extremes of joy and extremes of sorrow. And seeing video like was on the TV last night reminds us of what that potential is for all of us. Life is intense. In a way, we tend to forget about that intensity as we settle into the routine of a life. And we forget that this kind of intensity and the impact that it has on us is part and parcel of human life. In fact, all of sentient life. Thich Nhat Hanh uh, is a Buddhist monk who trained in Vietnam, was exiled because of his protests during the war, and ended up settling in France. 
And from time to time, he would still travel back to Asia to check up what he could of his people. And he came back from one trip where he had uh, seen the suffering of a number of boat people who were trying to flee Vietnam, but who were attacked on the seas by pirates, uh, who were killed on the seas, who were robbed, who were not admitted to other countries uh, because of the asylum policies. And after making a trip like that, because he can't go back to Vietnam itself, he came back to Paris and he looked around and he, he wrote that um, as I look around Paris, coming back from this trip, all the suffering here seems really minor to me compared with what these boat people are going through on a daily basis. The suffering in Paris seems really minor. It's not comfortable to live with this kind of um, proximity to the intensity of suffering, but from time to time I think we need to remind ourselves that this is a part of life also. There's a Tibetan dedication of merit that I really appreciate. Um, Merit is the wholesome quality that comes from our practice. And there's a tradition of um, offering that goodness to all beings, not just keeping it for ourselves so it doesn't become a selfish practice. And this dedication of merit says, by the merit of my practice, may all come to awakening. Having overcome the obstacle of my own misconduct, May I save all beings from the ocean of existence with its stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. I love that bit about the ocean of existence with its stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. This really is our situation as uh, sentient organisms on the planet. We're all subject to this kind of unpredictability, to this extreme kind of um, event. The waves are stormy. And when we encounter them, like we did on September 11th, they can take us in two directions. It's very easy to get um, beaten down by the waves, to feel that they've crashed on us and we're drowning in them that um, they overcome our ability to accommodate them. But I think the point of practice and the, the promise of practice is that if we know how, we can take all these waves and use them to ripen. We can use them to mature and deepen our own spiritual life. So that instead of being beaten down by them, we can actually become more uh, purified, or you could say more beautified, by even the drastic events of life. And I think what that means is we have to find a way to connect with a centered place within ourselves and hold these energies in that centered place. Because when we can find that centered place and rest in it, that's what changes everything. That's what makes the situation workable. There's this wonderful teacher from Thailand who comes here once a year named Ajahn Jamnian. I don't know if some of you know him. Whenever you mention him, it brings a smile to people's faces because he is the happiest monk 
that I have ever met. And in his younger days, he did a lot of loving-kindness practice, the practice that we started the evening with, and it is a really happy practice. So he also teaches Vipassana. He doesn't know many words of English, but he knows a few, and his favorite ones he likes to give as a teaching. He'll sit up and he'll smile at the, at the group and he'll say, empty, empty, happy, happy, empty, empty, happy, happy. And that's his transmission. So if you ever are with Ajahn Jimnian and you're getting lost in the tie or the translation, you just tune into that energy and you get that empty happiness that he has. One time we invited him up to the end of a retreat that we were doing up the hill. And he said, you know, at my Wat in Thailand, I receive visitors all day long. From the morning I wake, the minute I wake up in the morning until often 10 o'clock at night, people are coming to me with their meditation questions, with their relationship problems, householders come to me, nuns come to me, monks come to me. I'm talking to people all day long. But he said, I never get tired. Never get tired. I can talk to people all day. Never takes away my energy. And you can feel that in him. He can talk here all day and never get tired. And he said, I try to tell my monks how to do this, but they can't do it. He said, but my secret is, I rest in emptiness. I rest in emptiness. So my mind never goes out toward all those stories that I hear coming to me. I rest in this empty spaciousness, and from that place I can respond, I can teach, I can offer to people. So really you could say the whole of our practice is about finding out what that place is that Ajahn Jimnian has discovered and talks about and lives from, and finding out how to live from that place, at least more and more and more moments of our life. The teachings, and in particular the Brahma Viharas, I see as kind of a road map to that place. You could call it a place of awakened uh, consciousness, a place of awakening. And it really has two sides. One side is wisdom. It's a place from which we can see clearly the way things are. Wisdom is just about seeing the truth of things. But it's also a place of heartfulness a place where the the qualities of the heart can easily come out. So you could say that it's empty and happy. You could say that a phrase that Sylvia likes to use, the mind uh, is clear and the heart is open. It's a nice description about it. I like to think of it as an empty awareness that's pervaded with the quality of loving-kindness, or metta. Whatever description works for you, We're looking in our practice for both these qualities of seeing clearly and then having an open, responsive heart to the conditions of life, the changing conditions of life. The Brahma Viharas provide a really good roadmap to how the heartfulness side of our practice can express itself. And I basically see them as a description of the wise response to the changing conditions of life. You know, we have many responses to the change of life that are not so skillful, that bring suffering to us immediately, 
and that bring suffering to other people, short-term or long-term. But the Brahma-viharas are particularly there to describe what's a wise way to hold this situation, no matter what it is. And the, the, the maps of how we slide off from those, um, from those wise responses. So we develop metta as the basic foundation of caring. It's kind of a, an open heart that doesn't tip one way or another. Then when that open heart confronts suffering, the natural response is compassion. Compassion is just a caring in the light of suffering. When that open heart touches on somebody else's happiness, the natural response is this appreciative joy, this quality of becoming happy with somebody else's happiness. The Dalai Lama said that if you can do that, your chance for happiness goes up by six billion to one. (laughs) So it's a good bet to make. And then the equanimity that holds them all in a balance. Remember that equanimity is not about being shut down. It's not closing off and being indifferent. We feel the other person's happiness. We feel their difficulties. But we hold all of that within a balanced mind so that we ourselves are not suffering on account of their situation. And you can see how equanimity really becomes the foundation for the other three. That it holds uh, metta, because it uh, lets the open heart rest. It holds compassion so that we don't become too weighed down by the suffering we're feeling. And it actually holds joy in a sane way so that we don't float off like a balloon with the um, uplifting energy. The beauty is that it describes how to relate to different circumstances, basically circumstances of joy and sorrow. And the fact is that these circumstances are changing for everybody all the time. And they're not just changing for you and me. They change for every being in the world, the ones who are free as well as the ones who are still struggling and working. Even the Buddha, you'll be happy to know, had lots of back pain. Even after he was enlightened, he would sometimes say, Ananda, my back is really killing me tonight. You give the Dharma talk. I'm going to go lie down for the evening. So the Buddha was not immune to pleasure and pain even after his awakening. He still went through the same cycles that we do. There's one sutta I just want to uh, read a little bit from. This is from the Pali Canon, the... um, record of the teachings of the Buddha, which were written down 500 years after his death and constitute about 20 volumes in English translation today. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya and it's called Vicissitudes of Life. And the Buddha is speaking. He says, These eight worldly conditions, O monks, keep the world turning around. And the world turns around these eight worldly conditions. What eight? Gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, success and failure. I'll just read those eight again. Gain and loss, praise and blame, (coughs) pleasure and pain, 
success, and failure. These eight conditions alternated for uh, the Buddha also. You might think that, oh, after he was enlightened, he had a really easy life. But it wasn't like that. There were lots of people who didn't like his teaching. There were other teachers whose uh, words he threatened um, because he disagreed with them. There were power struggles within his community. His cousin was a monk and thought that he should be at the head of the community. So he actually tried to kill the Buddha. And uh, one time sent a, a mad elephant charging down an alleyway, trying to trample the Buddha in its path. It said that the Buddha stopped the elephant by the force of his loving kindness. So these eight conditions change for all of us. We're always going through ups and downs of all these different factors. And if we're holding on tight, we go up and down with them. If we can learn to rest in more of a place of equanimity, then we don't get so tied to the changing fortunes. Equanimity, the literal meaning, the word in Pali is upeka, and the literal meaning of it etymologically is looking on. We develop this faculty for looking on, even on the events of our own life. And then that gives us the strength to look on on the events of others' lives as well. So these up and down conditions happen all the time for all of us. These are the stormy waves of life. And they are also the grounds for developing the Brahma Viharas. They are the very conditions that can evoke the states of metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So we can actually train the heart around these changing circumstances. We have lots of different conditioned ways of reacting, but if we come back to the Brahma Viharas, they can show us a skillful way to react. And as we find more choice in our life, that makes a huge difference in freedom. Freedom is really about choosing how we might respond to an outer situation. Often we can't change the outer. Just comes together through factors. Have to let that be, have to accept that in many, many situations. But what we do have the potential to affect is our response to the outer situation. And this is where we build our practice. This is where we uncover our own freedom. I'll just give a quick example from the month-long retreat. Um, I was teaching in the first month in February, and someone came into an interview who'd been sitting for a few weeks at that point. And I don't know if you've observed this, but when people go on retreat for a while, they get really slowed down. Really slowed down, and it still seems like they're moving fast to them. So this yogi meditator came in and said one day she was going through the lunch line and she was moving really slowly. And she was approaching the serving dish and she was just reaching out her hand very slowly and mindfully for the serving spoon when somebody else who wasn't quite as concentrated sort of bolted up on the other side of the table, snatched the serving spoon and started dishing onto their plate as her hand was still moving toward it. And she said, in just that moment, this huge bolt of rage came up in her. She was so angry that somebody would overlook her practice, her mindfulness, her slowness, and just cut in front of her in the line. 
But also because she was quite slowed down, she saw it immediately. She knew, oh, that's rage. And she just dropped it right on the spot. Just on the spot, she let it go. That's the choice that real awareness and freedom can offer us. You know, I often, in my daily life, I'm driving down the freeway, somebody cuts in front of me, I haven't been going slowly or mindfully, and I'm, I spin out for a few cycles with that. So I was really inspired by this story, that seeing it that clearly really opened up her choice with the situation. So we could just take a look at the first of these worldly conditions, the conditions of gain and loss, and take a look at how we might relate from habit and how we might relate through the Brahma-viharas. Let's take loss as a beginning. How do we usually react if we suffer a loss? My older sister uh, died several years ago. I was pretty close with her. And her death put me into a period of um, depression for about two months. I felt a lot of uh, loss and sadness um, after, her, after she died. It was quite unexpected. I wasn't expecting her to die at all. She hadn't been particularly ill. And I practiced every day, um, as I do now, sitting for an hour in the morning. And the funny thing was that the practice and the mindfulness didn't seem to touch the grief very much. And day after day I would sit with it and it didn't seem to be wearing down particularly. I just kept sitting with it. And it would go through some ups and downs of intensity. And then after about two months, it kind of lifted. It was a really interesting thing for me to watch because the way it felt is that that loss or that grief had uh, its own expression. That it was going to make regardless of what I wanted it to do. It had its own life to live. And I think this is not uncommon, that when any of us lose something, we tend to respond with grief and depression. There are also stories from the time of the Buddha that um, illustrate this in an even more dramatic way. There's a famous story of a woman during his life whose name was Kisa Gotami. She was actually a cousin of his. She came from the same village that he had grown up in. She had gotten married through an arranged marriage and uh, had not, uh, shall we say, gotten on well with her in-laws. Coming in as the wife in that society, you moved into the husband's house, but the husband's parents ran the house. And if they didn't like you, you were the low person on the totem pole and your life could be miserable, and hers was. So she was quite unhappy, but then she bore a son. And bearing a son in that culture at that time, raised the woman's status uh, tremendously. So she got some degree of satisfaction in her household life. But then her son died. And the loss of her son, when he was still young, they say a toddler, so probably three or four, the loss of her son drove her crazy, drove her mad with grief. And she, she clutched her son, and she started going from person to person in the village, asking them for medicine. 
do you have medicine that can save my son? And she wouldn't listen to any of their replies. And finally, some kindly uh, person uh, suggested that she go talk to the Buddha. So she went and talked to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, "Um, I can make a medicine for your son. And what I need is for you to bring me a white mustard seed from a house that hasn't known any death. So she said, thank goodness, my son's going to be able to be cured. So she started to go from house to house in the village asking for a white mustard seed if they hadn't known death. And of course, what happened? Every house she went to had known death. We lost my mother two years ago. My daughter died last year. We lost my sister this year. Every house she went to had known death. So having gone to all the houses in the village, she finally understood. She buried her son in the forest. She came to the Buddha and she said, I see my son was not alone. I am not alone. But death is a condition that all of us face as people. Then as the story went on, she ordained as a nun She practiced seriously, and she came to liberation. It's the way those stories always go. (laughs) What I find a couple of things interesting about this story. When she went to the Buddha and told him about her problem, he didn't give her a wisdom teaching. You know, he didn't say, all conditioned things are impermanent. The way your son has gone is the way we're all going to go. Get with the program. He didn't say that. Because she couldn't have heard that at that time. So at first, I think what his teaching did was it didn't take away her grief, but it took away her madness. And in this newsletter, Sylvia has a um, a lead article that uh, has a really lovely line. She said... She's talking also about September 11th. She said, wisdom statements don't work in the middle of heartbreak. Heartbreak requires silence. Wisdom statements don't work. Heartbreak requires silence. I think that's a beautiful pointing. When we are in the midst of heartbreak, of our loss, are we able to find that degree of silence. Because if we are, then some other movement might come out of that silence. Particularly, I think, when we can touch that silent place, again, it's Ajahn Jumnian's awakened space, in the midst of difficulty, the flavor that naturally comes from the heart is compassion. And we start to see that our thinking about the difficulty somehow often can't hold it.
when things are really difficult, like September 11th, if you've lost a partner, if you've lost a child, you're having real conflict in your uh, relationship. Our thoughts about the situation can't hold that much pain. I actually think if any of us were to try to reflect on all the pain in one human life, our own human life, we couldn't hold all of that. But the magic thing is that the silence can hold it. You could say that emptiness can hold it. Or you could say that compassion can hold it. So that we discover that there's another possible response to pain, whether it's our loss or another's loss, and that is the response of compassion. When I found the compassion practice, just as we did it tonight, I took it up um, quite seriously. I did actually a 10-day retreat of compassion practice, doing nothing but that from uh, 5 in the morning until 10 at night. And it was very powerful uh, finding that it was a new relationship to pain. Compassion for me brought in with it a kind of equanimity that was able to hold the pain without being disturbed by it. And interestingly enough, compassion itself is not a suffering state. Even though the pain can be strong, when compassion starts to come out of the heart in response to the pain, there's a sweetness to compassion. And it is not a state of suffering. When you look at the half-smile on the Buddha. The Buddha was deeply in touch with suffering, but that half-smile is the equanimity that let him hold the suffering in a skillful way, so that he was able to respond to someone like Kisa Gotami and able to help and say the right thing, say the appropriate thing to her in the midst of her suffering. One of my teachers commented that The feeling of compassion is a lot like watching a sunset. Sitting up on a mountainside, looking out as the sun sets in the west, there's a beauty at that time, and there's also kind of a tinge of sadness, which is the ending of the day, the passing of whatever that was. He said, compassion has that flavor. There's a beauty and a sweetness to it, and it's okay if it has a tinge of sadness. It's going to because it's touching suffering but it doesn't need to be suffering itself. So compassion is a way of looking on suffering without directly suffering ourselves. Grief, like the grief that I felt for my sister, is a state of suffering. And so grief needs to be supported by equanimity so that it can move into compassion. It's sometimes said that grief is the near enemy of compassion, that the heart slides into grief when it doesn't have enough strength or support or equanimity to be able to hold the pain just with pure compassion. So then how do we relate to gain? This is kind of the other side of the picture. Um, Let's take a less dramatic example with gain. Often when the Buddha talked about gain and loss, he was talking about material gain and loss. So if we go back into some ancient 
uh, history in terms of uh, internet time, two years ago, uh-huh. the bubble of the stock market was on the upswing. Did you know a lot of people who were getting rich? No? A few? I knew a few. I knew a few who were getting rich in that bubble. How did it feel? Were you able to be completely happy and joyful (laughs) about their happiness? When you hadn't made the same bets? Or was there a little tinge of disgruntlement? Gosh, I wish it weren't going quite so well for them. I wouldn't mind if their stock had you know, gone up 50%, but tripling? The response, obviously, of the Brahma-viharas is inviting us to feel happy with another's happiness. And we're not asked to judge whether that happiness makes sense or not. We're tuning into their happiness, not our version of happiness. And if they feel happy because their stocks have made money, can we just tune in purely and enjoy their happiness with them? That's the call of mudita, appreciative joy, the third of the Brahma-viharas. But it often slides into this little bit of disgruntlement, which the Buddha called envy. And so this is called the far enemy or the opposite of appreciative joy. When someone has happiness, but it's like it's a little too much happiness. (laughs) And as though they're having that much happiness means we can't have quite as much. Like happiness is some kind of limited thing. And if you've got too much of it, it takes away some of mine. So with gain, when one of your friends is experiencing gain in whatever arena, They've gained a new friendship, a new relationship, a new job, material fortune, whatever it is. Can we be happy about that? Classically, the commentaries say that appreciative joy is the hardest of these four to practice because of the influence of envy, because it's hard not to slide into envy. So then, when the bubble burst, and your friend lost that fortune, what was your feeling? Was there pure compassion? Or was there just a touch of satisfaction? Like, that should never have gone so high in the first place. This is justice. Was there a little bit of enjoying their downfall? This is a common tendency And, to put it bluntly, this is the factor called cruelty. Cruelty is the state of heart that enjoys another person's suffering, whether it's little or big. And cruelty is the far enemy, or the opposite, of compassion. So as we look on loss, Can we hold compassion as kind of the gold standard, whether the loss is ours or another, whether the pain is ours or another? Can we hold it with compassion? And can we be sensitive to when the heart is sliding over into 
either grief, not supported by enough equanimity, or the far enemy, which is cruelty. You know, this is an awful word, cruelty, and no one wants to be thought of as cruel, but I think we all have the tendency. don't know if you've noticed on the media how many times in the reports over the last four or five months there's been kind of reveling in uh, the war operation from both sides. Oh boy, you know, hundreds of people were killed today in our action in Afghanistan. Or from the other side, uh, thank goodness we got some American servicemen at last. It was really what they deserved. This reveling in death is another form of cruelty. This is true whether one supports the war or not. This is still cruelty, enjoying the suffering of another. With delight, the uh, delight of happiness and gain, uh, the far enemy is uh, envy. The near enemy is becoming kind of overexcited. And we can see this with our own gain very easily. Do you notice when something good comes into your life, it's very hard to just hang out with that in silence? Sometimes it's harder to hang out with happiness in silence than it is with difficulty. Because what happens, I think, is our minds tend to latch on to the happiness as a possession and then kind of build on what we're going to do with life now that we have this possession. This mental, kind of the interference of thought with happiness kind of corrupts the happiness. It kind of undermines it because we start to spin out in our thoughts about it and we can't just feel the pure joy of the thing. Just take a look next time. This is called elation. In, it's the English translation of um, the Buddha's term. Elation is the near enemy of appreciative joy. And it really undermines uh, the impact of the joy itself. So these are the um, kind of roadmaps that are offered by the Brahma Viharas to these changing alternations of pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, of praise and blame, of success and failure. When we encounter pain, can we meet it with compassion? When we encounter joy, can we hold it with an appreciation that resonates with that joy? And can we look for these slides away that move into grief or cruelty or the sliding away that moves into elation or into envy? Because all the Brahma Viharas are supported by equanimity, as we find our home in them more and more, we really come to a greater balance with all the change that's in the world. Like Ajahn Jumnian, we're not so moved by it. We don't have to reach out and get entangled with it as much. But our heart is still very responsive. It's not that we're turned off or cold, but the entanglement with it really tends to get cut down. And as we're not getting so entangled in the ups and downs, our motivation can really shift from getting to giving. And I think this is really the start of the bodhisattva path. 
the path where our practice, where our life, really starts to have a dimension of not just being for ourselves, but being for the benefit of all beings. And that that moves from being a cliché to being an actual motivating reality for us. I'll just close with this quotation from Shantideva, Indian uh, Buddhist teacher of the 8th century. One of the Dalai Lama's favorite quotations. For as long as space endures, and as long as sentient beings remain, may I too abide to dispel the unhappiness of this world. So I think we'll stop uh, the talk there. Um, We have about 10 minutes left if you have any reflections, comments, discussion, questions. um, Open it up. Please. Yeah, good question. Question, could you all hear the question back there? How, how <coughs> can we understand uh, justice in light of the emphasis on compassion and non-harming in the Buddhist teachings? First thing I'd like to say is I think the Buddha was very dedicated to a life of non-violence. And I think that um, you can get a sense of how that might show up in the world today by the Dalai Lama and the way that he speaks and teaches. Um, Actually, I wanted to read this. This is also from the newsletter, and it kind of fits. At the end of a talk, someone from the audience asked the Dalai Lama, why didn't you fight back against the Chinese? Because this also could be a form of justice to fight back against an invader. The Dalai Lama looked down, swung his feet just a bit, then looked back up at us and said with a gentle smile, Well, war is obsolete, you know. Then after a few moments, his face grave, he said, Of course the mind can rationalize fighting back, but the heart, the heart would never understand. Then you would be divided in yourself, the heart and the mind, and the war would be inside you. I think that's a might be taken as a fairly accurate pointer to the way that the Buddha might answer the question if he were here today. I think the Buddha um, felt justice was really appropriate. In the rules that he set up for the community of monks and nuns, um, there were offenses that were described as offenses against those rules, and there were specific punishments um, for each of the offenses proportional to the offense. Some involved being uh, excommunicated from the order altogether. Others involved lesser penances. So I think that the idea of justice is in the Buddha's teachings, but I think that he would look very long and hard to find nonviolent ways of coming to justice 
And I obviously don't have any easy answer for what that would mean in terms of the world situation today or Afghanistan. I don't know. Um, but I do have the feeling that the leaders of, of our country and the world have not put as much time into exploring nonviolent alternatives and tend to move rather quickly to violent alternatives. <coughs> Any other comments? Questions? Yes, please. I have a question that's a little off the topic. It's about um, not harming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always have a problem with uh, refraining from killing when it gets to mm-hmm. a level of incest. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's, it sounds funny, but we yeah. had termites in our house, and I couldn't justify selling the house to someone else. And I couldn't justify to myself losing the shelter for my family either, yeah. and yet I felt guilty about <coughs> killing them. And how do you decide when what you're doing is really rational or when you're fooling yourself? Questions about the precept on not killing and the attitude of non-harming and what to do with insects in the house with termites, for example. It's a real question for serious Buddhists. And uh, I'll just tell you a little story. Um, the Minneapolis Zen Center years ago had cockroaches and they were infesting the meditation hall. So new people didn't want to come in and practice because cockroaches would run over their legs. <laughs> so the senior students thought, well, we'll ask the Zen master. He must know what to do about this. So they went up to see the Zen master who was Katagiri Roshi and explained the situation and um, said, uh, Roshi, what should we do? And uh, he said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. And so what the senior students decided to do was to have the um, meditation hall exterminated. They killed the cockroaches so that meditators would come and practice. And they felt that was the right alternative. And I think um, many other people who are good, sincere Buddhists come to a similar kind of decision. And what I think is that there are times when um, killing, ma- killing, say, insects may be the right option for any one of us. It may be the option we choose. And it doesn't take away from the fact that we're breaking the precept. And in breaking the precept, there's a certain amount of, the understanding is there's a certain amount of unskillful uh, action going on and that we'll have repercussions in our life. And I believe that happens. So I hold the precepts not as an absolute commandment, but as a guideline to use in skillfully choosing your own route in the situation. One other thing I wanted to say, um, I think there are Buddhists who have different views on pacifism. And this gets back to the first question also. I think there are responsible Buddhists who would say that Uh, the Tibetans should have defended their country against the Chinese. And there were certainly Tibetan fighters who wanted to do that. The Dalai Lama did not encourage them or would not support them. But I think that one can be a conscientious Buddhist and believe that at times war might be the right response. And World War II certainly comes closer to that situation than today's war. But uh, what, I, what I also want to add is along with the 
situation with insects, I think the situation with killing humans is the same. That I think there are huge karmic repercussions from the taking of human life. And those are not uh, dismissed because one believes that it's the right course and it's justified. One last comment, please. It's a very good question. I don't know. I don't know. I have not. I haven't seen any teachings that point to that. I've heard of that sutra too, then in, in uh, maybe not as detailed a way that the story that I heard went that there was a pirate on board a ship who was going to kill all 500 people on the ship. And um, one person on the ship killed the pirate, thereby taking one life but saving 500 lives. And the scripture, which is from the Mahayana, so it means it didn't come out of the mouth of the Buddha, but came out of very enlightened beings centuries later, um, the scripture goes on to say that that being uh, did suffer the karmic consequence of taking a life, which was that he spent one moment in hell. But then he was immediately reborn after that one moment in a very happy life. The Buddha also said that the workings of karma are one of the four things that can drive you crazy if you think about them too much. <laughs> so... I would encourage us to take the messages from the suttas and kind of leave it there. So, I'd like to just close the evening. We've come to 9.15 with this dedication of merit from the Tibetan, uh, having the sense that we want to take whatever goodness has come out of our time together this evening and have that goodness be shared with all beings everywhere for their welfare for their happiness, for their freedom. And so I'll just close with this quotation of the Tibetan dedication again. Through the merit of this practice, may all come to awakening. Overcoming the obstacle of my own misconduct, may I free all beings from the ocean of existence with its stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.